everyone. Welcome to an episode of Bringing Young Money, and this is a special episode. You've got Kyle and Greg and Jordan, the normal cast and the normal crew, but we also are joined by former mayor of Salt Lake City and former presidential candidate and maybe future potential mayor as well, Rocky Anderson. Hello, Rocky. Hi. It's good to be with you. Thank you, guys. Anything else I should add to that that bio? I think that, that kind of sums it for, up. Former Democratic nominee for Congress in 1996. Okay. Uh, uh, but what I did most of my adult life was practicing law and litigating cases and doing as much as I could to protect people against abuses of power and vindicating their rights when their rights were abused. And I'm very proud of what we were able to do during those decades of legal service. Absolutely. Yeah. And um, I, I think, were you on the presidential ballot in 2016 and then 2020? 20, 2012. Oh, 2012. And then 2016. And then uh, I think, no, did you, uh, did you just endorse Bernie in, in 2016? It was that what took place? I can't yeah. remember. Yeah. The justice party endorsed Bernie okay. Sanders in 2016. And gotcha. uh, he, he could have won that race. Uh, we, we, as much as we'd love to relitigate the last uh, six years over and over again, and I can't, you, I can't Lord do knows it again, we, Lord knows we have. Uh, we're probably going to avoid doing that. Well, not just that, but it gets relitigated online every three weeks. So it's, check you know, in, check in in three or four days, and I'm sure the uh, the discourse will, you know, turn the tides, and and we'll be back talking about it. That's okay. right. I, and I know you don't want to go off on this, but just let me make this point. I Please. Was Amy Goodman on Democracy Now! the day yeah. after the, the Utah Democratic Caucus, mm-hmm. when he won, I think, 86% of the of the vote. Yeah, he, cl- and, he cleans up in Utah. And yeah. he did in Idaho. Uh, it was the same day, and Arizona's was a closed caucus, and Hillary Clinton won that one. And I went on, and Dolores Forte was on advocating for Hillary Clinton, but probably because the Clinton Foundation had just given the Dolores Huarte Foundation $100,000, we found It's crazy out. how that works, yeah. Yeah, they're amazing. But, they, but the point that I made was in Utah, the polls showed that Bernie Sanders, in a general poll, Republicans, Democrats, independents, across the board, was up, I believe, 16% in a head-to-head with... Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton, I think, was two percent. Oh so, man! Yeah, I mean, that's in Utah. Yeah, I mean, Republicans it, usually get the highest margin. Sure. And and it's true that that there hadn't been a campaign. Donald Trump hadn't been able to do his deal about the socialist and all that. But <laughs> but people knew enough that when you have that great a disparity in the polls. And somebody running so strongly and getting young people out to vote, that's the most important point. And so we ended up, Democrats, Republicans, with the least popular, least trusted candidates ever. They were both in the negatives. Yep. Trustworthiness (laughs) and unfavorability. Okay. That's what well, I mean, interview me about, but you raise an issue. I'm no, there. that and that <laughs> is an issue. And like, it's it, it's one we've talked about because I mean, 2016 in particular, there was a Bernie Sanders rally and a Trump rally in Utah on the same day. 
and uh-huh. Bernie Sanders rally was up at the, this is the place yeah. memorial. And it was, uh, it was took place earlier in the afternoon. There were, it was one of the big, the biggest rallies that's ever taken place in the state of Utah. And there were just tens of thousands of people there. Um, I went to that one and then I was, had a very uh, sick curiosity of what was going on at the Trump rally, which took place in this venue where I used to go to middle school dances and have like glow stick parties. And I went, was outside of that. And the stark contrast of just like what people were very excited about. I mean, there were more people protesting the Trump rally that day than actually were inside of the, of the venue. But um, yeah, I, I mean, we all know the vibes in Utah and how Bernie uh, compares to some of the other um, democratic candidates we've seen in the last um, 10 years, I guess you could say, but Rocky, you're here today because recently you've been uh, kicking around the idea of running for mayor. Is that correct? No, I, I, I've been doing more than kicking around. Well, I, kicked I, I, was around. Just, I wanted you to really sell it and really plug it for <laughs> us. I will tell you, I, I kicked please. it around for a long time. Some people came to me, talked about what a disaster things are in this city. And, and it is. It's, I think, in the worst shape it's ever been in. I think we have the worst leadership. Uh, basically impotent leadership mm-hmm. uh, or absent leadership. And um, I love the city. I hate to see yeah. how it's deteriorated yeah. over these years. And I, it, it's cost, it, it breaks my heart to see the impact on people's quality of life and on the treatment of those who are experiencing homelessness uh, and the neighbors who are experiencing more crime. And it's just this, it shouldn't be us pitting neighbors versus homeless people against each other, but it's become a lose-lose for everybody. And so people would come to me, and I know there are solutions. I was mayor. We handled some tough problems. This certainly is a complex problem, but it is solvable if you have leadership that says, here are our goals. Here's how we're going to do it. Make it transparent. Get everybody on board including the LDS church, the legislature, the federal government, put the funding road home, uh, all the service providers. It's amazing what can be done. Among those partners, the road home, Salt Lake City Housing, Salt Lake County Housing Authority, the Utah legislature for Utah money allocated by the legislature, the LDS church uh, in the person of Lloyd Pembleton, who is amazing, Pendleton, rather, we put in, all of us combined, one after the other after the other. Amazing projects, permanent housing for the chronic, chronically homeless. That is the solution to homelessness. Absolutely. Is housing. Yeah, I think well, it's pretty clear. And yeah, and I, I, I completely agree. Yeah, and. It's 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 a pretty frustrating conversation, and the, the the problem of homelessness just across the entire country, I think, is is in the forefront of a lot of people's minds. We've got a lot of layers of issues here. One of which being the federal government hasn't done any investing in public housing in I think at least twenty years, um, and so what it's really breaking down to in a lot of cases. And I think that you obviously have some experience of when you were mayor um, previously is that. You know, there are municipalities, cities, states that can do things at that level and provide housing. And the solution for homelessness is housing people. And I don't know why that seems to be so difficult for a lot of people to understand. 
Um, and there seems to be, uh, you know, there's very punitive measures in a lot of places. And part of the impetus of you coming on this podcast is, is that you and Greg were in a discussion in some Twitter replies and you were gracious to start, you know, saying, please just call me <laughs> to have a long form <laughs> conversation, which is kind of how this, how this came about. Um, and, and I'm, you know, Greg, if you could kind of speak to, I like, I think you were, you had a, a disagreement with, with Rocky and I want to get to the, the core of that. Um, but a, a, a big problem that causes rippling effects through, uh, you know, the, the homeless community, people that experience homelessness, people that are chronically homeless is the compounding impact of criminalizing homelessness. Because once, once you're, you've been criminalized, you've, you're doing time, you've caught charges, um, you've been convicted. It's, it, it's, it's a very vicious cycle. And so Greg, could you give us a little background on, on, on your thoughts on, on, on like what you were discussing on Twitter? And I'll, I'd like for us to get to like yeah, the core absolutely. of what that discussion um, was. And Rocky, please feel free to correct me if I'm wrong, but, um, wasn't part of your platform, something along giving, uh, the homeless, some sort of ultimatum about, uh, mm. going into some sort of therapeutic program or, uh, facing criminal charges. Oh, Is absolutely that not. Okay. Okay. <laughs> and if you had read the entire article, and the three sentences or four sentences before the sentences that tr the Tribune pulled out on Instagram. Yeah, mm -hmm. which we all saw. That the context was, I was talking about diverting people away from jail, that I did that when I was mayor. We had, that we had the country's most comprehensive restorative justice program mm -hmm. that was recognized internationally. Right. Part of that was making sure that we weren't about punishment, we weren't about retribution, we were about solving problems. And so what I said, it was all in the context of if somebody has violated the law, find out what their situation is and solve the problem. If it's because of mental illness, we had a, we had a, a mental health court mm -hmm. where if somebody committed a crime, they wouldn't get charged. They'd be brought into that mental health court and they'd find ways to deal with their mental illness so they weren't violating the law anymore. So I totally understand why when those when people read those sentences that were pulled out by the Tribune and they're in the in the block that they put on Instagram, mm -hmm. I would say anybody that uttered that out of any other context was a total fascist. Yeah, I, I, I and then when I saw, I mean, people who know me know that's the last thing I would do is go tell yeah. any homeless person, hey, you either go get treatment, you go into a shelter, we're going to take you to jail. And the homeless people know me. I went down today to, to the Magnolia. There were guys down there. I hadn't been mayor in 14 years. They're waving, hey, Rocky, Rocky, you know. Sure, yeah. Well, the, so it's, I don't, but if you read that entire article, you'll see mm -hmm. that it said when I was mayor, we had this restorative justice program doing what we could to divert people into treatment, into other programs, some other resolution, rather than just sending them to jail. So well, yeah. That that I, I'm firm about, you know, these people I, I was down, I spent four hours with the homeless community down in Cottonwood Park the other night. None of these people should be in jail for right. anything that's going Absolutely. on. And, at this, and even 
equally, they shouldn't be subject to the constant fear of, and I hate to use this word, but it's the word that the mayor uses, it's the word the police use and the police chief, abatements. You abate mosquitoes, you abate yeah. nuisances, you shouldn't be abating human beings. It, yeah, that it's pretty horrifying the way it's often described. Yeah, um, listen, yeah. I mean, how dehumanizing. Oh, uh, completely. Oh, these are abatements. Yeah, like, yeah. like well, then, that's how we. That, that's how people that commit genocide mm-hmm. base Absolutely. people dehumanize them. They talk about them as cockroaches to eliminate. So these abatements. A, a police captain was quoted in the paper the other day, in Sunday paper, I think two weeks ago, saying, "We know when we're abating these encampments. We're running them off. We know that they don't have any other alternative." But they're going to go set up again, and then we're going to go there and run them off there too. Ugh. But yeah, that it, how absolutely inhumane that is. And you know, you talk to homeless people, and I, I I've had a lot of personal interactions over the years. I, I you know I don't I'm not one to pat myself on the back and say look how great I am as a human being, all I've done. But I can tell you, I've got. I, I did take a homeless person in while he was awaiting charges so he wouldn't have to be in jail. Yeah. I, I've, I, I got, anyway, I'm not, I, totally I, get where you're coming I, from. I've gotten yeah. to know their situation. Yeah. yeah and- one of them deserves to be in jail. They deserve housing. One of them was a year and a half in front of the judge building where I have my law office. Uh-huh. He was sleeping out in the winter. In the freezing cold, I did everything I could for him. Worked with Matt Minkovich. Here he is, the director of the road home. And he took a personal interest, probably because I was calling him all the time. We finally got him into an apartment. It was only $50 a month. I paid one month. Another guy in my building paid the other month. And then he finally got in to permanent housing with services. He is mentally ill. He's got those problems. But he's also, when he was out on the street, he was smoking spice. He was, you know, he was a threat to himself, to other people. It was a bad situation. Sometimes the cops had to take him away. Now he's got, he's got housing and it totally has transformed this man. He's clean. He's wearing clean clothes. He's proud. He's grateful because he knows how much better his life is now because he's got housing. Every one of us need to be able to understand that giving people a home, that's what they want. There are people who are shelter resistant. What does that mean? They don't like going into a shelter if they've been exposed to threats, to violence, absolutely, to the drugs, the theft of their property, bed bugs. You know, shelters aren't homes. I think it's pretty clear. Yeah, absolutely. Exactly. Yeah. Resource centers have they they failed the neighborhoods. They haven't lived up to their promises to these neighborhoods. So you got folks in the ballpark district, the the Gell Miller Resource Center. If I were Gell Miller, I'd ask to have my name removed temporarily until they fix this problem. (laughs) Yeah. Because they don't do anything about the crime outside their doors. And the police don't respond. The police response has been ridiculous. So what does the mayor do? She has a big press conference. 
oh, we're putting a police substation in the stadium. Yeah. Yeah. Think about it. What, as one of the neighbors said, by the way, the mayor was only going to take questions from the media. I don't get that. When I was here, we called them press and community conferences. We take questions from anybody. So, yeah. So I've got a question for you. So, I mean, I think we're all on the same page as far as like, you know, how homelessness in the city should be treated. Unfortunately, it seems that um, local government, mayor, state legislature, et cetera, are captured by the Salt Lake Police Department, different police departments across the state and real estate developers and developments. And I think that that has probably I mean, I, I, I was a bit younger when you were in office previously, but I know we all were (laughs) you. I mean, you look as young as ever, Rocky, I got to say, but I will say that, you know, the real estate development in Utah has just exponentially grown since you, since you were in place. And I can only imagine that the real estate development lobby has even more capture or hold over local politicians, politics, police departments, et cetera. And the yeah. Utah oh, oh yeah. Like, yeah, we've talked plenty of times about how the speaker of the house is, is the president of a, of a housing development company or whatever. Well, um, and, and Aaron Mendenhall is, is married to a real estate developer. Right. Like so, those, those roots run incredibly deep. And yeah. then I think additionally on top of that, and something that I'm sure you're familiar with, obviously, but like the problem of of policing in general, but policing in this city, we've seen so many examples of just how unable police are at at dealing with what they've been tasked to deal with. So when we talk about these things of how we're going to deal with homelessness moving forward, where, you know, we aren't we aren't, you know, pressing we, we, we aren't charging them with anything. We're not taking them to jail immediately. The reality is what, I, what I'm what I'm worried about is that these programs are like these initiatives to try to, you know, intervene before we taken them to jail, it might still be up to police officers, if that makes sense. Like we, there was um, a great example that we talked about on this podcast last summer when it happened of like a 13 year old autistic boy that was having like a mental breakdown ended up being shot by police 13 times and somehow lived. And it's like, that's who was called to like that type of situation. So my fear is that for these type of situations, there's not funding or anything else to deal with what you say, like the, the way that you say that we should deal with this thing with, with this issue. And I agree that's that's how we should deal with it. But I'm curious mm-hmm. how you plan on addressing that problem. And I what I what I can't get over is that it's it seems like there's going to have to be a reckoning with the Salt Lake Police Department in particular and how funds are spent with a police department versus how we spend funds elsewhere. Can you speak to that? Absolutely. And and by the way, the buck stops with the mayor. Yeah, my the mayor can fire the chief of police. And when I first ran, I promised I would fire Chief Ortega after he sends the police into Liberty Park in riot gear and with shields and cleared the park. I remember that because there were a couple of people smoking a joint at the drums. Yeah. Imagine that. Yeah. I, rem- I remember that <laughs> so, uh, clearly. So I uh, I pledged. <laughs> And I, I, I didn't have any idea politically how it would come down. It's just I wanted people to know. First thing I do, I fire Chief Ortega. Now I've made it clear the first thing I do is fire Chief Brown. His, his leadership has been horrendous. Just last week, and, and you asked what I would do. I would do what I did 
when I was there before, I completely changed the culture of the police department. I put in, we started the crisis intervention teams, the CIT officers. They were trained intensively in how to recognize mental illness and how to deal with people with mental illness. And that has saved lives. There's no question about it. And I remember I just was so upset about under Mayor Cordini, you know, the mentally ill person comes out like waving a sword and the police just shoot him. Yeah. Or I talked to the sister of this guy. Her brother was mentally ill. He's having a breakdown. She called the police. She said, now he does have a gun. Please be careful. He has a gun and don't shoot him. He, 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 he's, but he is mentally ill. She called the police. Wrong people to call in that situation because be, this guy had a gun. Police shot him dead. That Those are the kinds of things that were happening. So we created the, this crisis intervention team. Now, last week, what do we read about our police? One mentally ill woman, and she had methamphetamine uh, on board at the time. They found out, but she was mentally ill, homeless. How many people do you see on our streets that are yelling and acting hostile because they're mentally ill? You see it all the time. I called somebody at Crossroads Urban Center today. He answered the phone, and within two minutes, this woman is yelling at him. You know, they experience it every 15 minutes, I think, down there. That's, that's part of who the population is. Well, this woman, I think it was eight, eight months ago, um, she was acting out. The police were called. They demanded her name. She didn't give her name. So the police jumped her on the ground. They, they put their weight on her. They were cuffing her, shackling her, and she died of a, of a heart attack and an yeah. injury to the brain. Yeah. These are police officers that weren't de-escalating. They yeah. And and I know they've had some de-escalation training, but it has to be the number one priority. You never respond to anybody in our community in a way that's going to escalate the situation. And I happen to think that there ought to be a total ban on a total prohibition on police using vulgar language toward anybody with whom they deal, because that's always an escalator. You know, those I call you okay. any sort of names, that's just going to escalate the hostility. Absolutely. It's supposed to be yeah. professionals. Okay, so last week, we find out about that. Then there's one officer who's being tried for using his canine uh, yeah. as, as a weapon. A black yeah, we, we've man. talked about that. Yeah. yeah, okay. And then we find out that there was a, a call, emergency call, Two officers arrive. There's a man bleeding, to, a black man bleeding to death on the floor of an elevator. The two police officers trained in first aid. Okay, you guys all, were you Boy Scouts? Did you have any first aid training? Yes. What do you do on a major wound where the person's bleeding profusely? You put pressure, pressure, pressure to the bleeding. Some sort of turning out, whatever yeah. you've got, put pressure on. 
elevate their life. These officers, they were being begged by the girlfriend, who actually was a stabber also. Nobody knew that at the time. She was saying, do something. Why aren't you doing something? He said, what do you expect us to do? We're not paramedics. Medical is on the way. They stood there for over eight minutes and never even touched this man who was bleeding to death, and he ble- he died two hours later. This is in one week. Yeah. You, know, you know what the chief and the mayor both said about that latter instance? We stand behind these officers. As they always do. And like it, it comes at a time when the Salt Lake Police budget is is at an all-time high, and there's this constant, you know, um, you know, claiming that, you know, we've defunded the police. I hear that from, from people, uh, you know, defunded. they take that as fact. Exactly. The but mayor like, gave to the, she has to be the you're worst negotiator right. on the planet. <laughs> you're absolutely I, right. I, I threw the union head out of my office once and terminated <laughs> negotiations and actually negotiated a new contract with one of the other guys that I knew and I'd done a ride along with because I trusted him. Yeah. This, this union had violated the law in my office threatening if they didn't get so much money we they were going to strike during the olympics and unfortunately i wasn't running a tape recorder because then he lied about it and said he didn't do that i don't think he realized that was a violation of the law you can't threaten to strike anyway that's 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 amazing but there are people that genuinely believe like in utah that believe that the reason why there's so many homeless people downtown or across the state is because we've defunded the police there's not enough police to deal with them it's like fox news is like number one talking point anytime that there's any sort of like report of a like semi-decently sized city that you know that is uh, apparently in peril yeah, exactly. It always goes back to the defunding of the police and, you know, the <laughs> radical leftist agenda and all the other just like bullshit talking. Yes, yeah, so I have a really democratic mayors. You yeah, know? I have yeah, a big exactly. question. About that. Yeah. So, Rocky, I, I don't know how familiar you are with like the situation in San Francisco with the recall of like Chesa Boudin, for instance. Sure. And, you know, uh, I, that was a very interesting case study in like the, the money that lined up behind uh, someone that was a self-described socialist, a progressive prosecutor as he, as he went by. And what we ended up seeing quite literally was that, I mean, people associated the, like all the problems in the city to, to Chesaboudin. And then also we saw what was, could only be described as like a police revolt against, uh, against him being in office essentially. And it, it, for some reason in this, in this instance, the mayor was far less progressive than Chesa. Um, a lot of real estate money was behind, uh, the person who ended up replacing him through that recalling process. So I'm curious on your concerns about that type of thing moving forward, because that seemed to be kind of a blueprint for what these these blue cities, I guess, um, that have these types of problems might do moving forward, where you know well, someone comes into office and it's like, oh, we're not just not going to do our jobs anymore because you know we don't have to. <laughs> no, I, I, I'm I'm as hard a person as you'll find about going after people that abuse their power. If they're police officers, you, you'd be held accountable for it. But those who are suffering mental illness, those who are homeless, whatever somebody's situation is, you, a restorative justice approach isn't a soft approach. I mean, it is a softer, it's a more compassionate approach, but it's effective. It saves taxpayers money 
It helps solve problems. And instead of just satisfying people's lust for, for punishment, there's a great book called uh, um, the, uh, A Rage to Punish. It was written by a judge who stepped off the bench rather than, than sentencing this man according to minimum mandatory sentencing requirements of the legislature. The fantastic book about the insanity of just throwing the book at people and not trying to solve the problems. And right. in some instances, making them spend so many years behind prison where nothing is being accomplished, uh, especially drug offenses. We have more people behind bars and jails and prisons in this country than all of Western Europe has people behind bars for all offenses. Yep. Let that sink in. The highest incarceration rate in the world. Yep. And the taxpayers are financing it, and it just gets us in deeper and deeper. And it's very, the, the racial consequences of this are horrendous. And there's clamoring for more people to be, you know, like, oh, we're not tough on crime enough. And they, despite the fact that, as you're saying, we have more incarcerated people per capita than anywhere on earth. But somehow we just need to be even even tougher. Somehow other places have we, figured it out a bit better than us. Yeah, We have senators, like people in power, like Tom Cotton, saying that there aren't enough people in jail. Right. Yeah. Well, it's incredible. We, we had we had an executive director of the Department of Corrections when I used to sue them a lot. <laughs> and I did. I sued them a lot. And they're, they're, we made some really good law in cases. One of them, uh, DeLand, uh, it was Bot versus DeLand. And the executive director, his name was Gary DeLand. And uh, the Corrections Association asked me if I would debate him. And I said, be happy to at their convention. So I've got all of his employees there. And I thought, oh, these people are going to hate me. Well, I got there. They loved me because they hated what this guy was doing at the department, many of them. And he got up and he said, our approach is, first of all, he, he totally he, he had nothing but disdain for the concept of rehabilitation. He said, he, it's a famous statement, they were never habilitated in the first place. Yeah. So, Every inmate at the Utah State Prison was a, just a bad person, and there's nothing you can do about it. And then he said, we just need to keep every one of them as long as we can so when they get out, they're too old to commit crime. Yes. That was his approach. I said, why it's do you call yourself horrific. the Department of Corrections? What a misnomer. Yeah, absolutely. That's yeah. that. It's, it's horrifying. I mean – yeah, we could talk about homelessness, crime, mental illness for a long time. I, like I, I, something you said earlier, talking about like the the dehumanizing aspect for in particular. Like there's, like a lot of people just assume, oh, there's mental, like oh, anyone that's homeless, they're mentally ill, they're on drugs or whatever. But just like the system that we have in place, that 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 where pe so many people are on such a thin line before becoming homeless, like mm -hmm. they're one, one job being lost away, one, one bad illness where they, you know, uh, go into massive debt to pay for their medical bills away from, from falling into that situation. And then once you're in homelessness, you're experiencing the most dehumanizing, dehumanizing, um, just treatment in like that could possibly be contrived where, you know, 
the, the radical position in some cases to, is to let people camp outside forever. Like that's where, you know, people are fighting for just the right to do that, which is already so dehumanizing on it, on its face. So how could people not become so mentally ill after being treated like that for year after year and decades after decades and, you know, being outside and being. And they self-medicate. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So it, it's all, it's all very much uh, one and the same in a lot of cases. Um but I do want to move on uh, and 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 talk a little bit about um, kind of your political career. So, in in you were a founding member of the Justice Party, and at one point in 2011, you denounced the Democratic Party. And I'm curious what went what went into your decision to do that at the time. You cited uh, national defense, environment, healthcare. I'm curious if you could expand on those things a little bit because that's those are three things that. We talk a lot about well, <laughs> this I, podcast. I, I actually denounced the Democratic Party long before that. Oh, I was, well, 2011 I was, I, officially, I, I guess. Yeah. I, I said once on Amy Goodman, I, I I put my proud Democrat coffee mug in storage. I, it's like I, I'm not that proud to be a Democrat anymore. Remember, right. now looking back, three the, the, the three of the last four Democratic nominees for president who were in the Senate at the time of the Iraq War, John Kerry, uh, Hillary Clinton, and Joe Biden all voted for the Iraq War. I mean, Joe Biden was on the uh, was the head of the Intelligence Committee. Uh, Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Yeah. Foreign yeah. Relations, yeah. That's what it was. Yeah, yeah you're right. Whipping votes for the war. It's it's yeah. it's it's horrific. And Hillary that Clinton no one... was out there promoting it. Yeah. I, yeah. And, no one know, will ever be held responsible for that. And the it's, interesting thing yeah. is, I've got on my wall here a letter I got out of the blue when when we when we all came together here in Salt Lake City and I spoke at the Washington Square. We had thousands and thousands of people out. It got international attention. Then we marked that marched down. State Street Nation, Nation did a cover article on on me and on that march and on the fact that this was happening in Utah. Yeah. Got, and, and President Clinton sent me the nicest note congratulating me on that speech, thanking me for my leadership. It was all I could do to refrain from writing back and asking him if he'd ever spoken to his wife about going out and pushing for that war and spreading George Hell Bush's yes. lies. It was also, now Now we've got Biden, you know, talking about he's going to spend all these billions of dollars for giving student loans and all that. He was the one who led the 18 Democratic senators to vote to make student debt non-dischargeable and yep. bankruptcy. Yes. We yep. talked about that. Oh, you have talked about that? I didn't, yeah, it, I mean, it, it's insane. I didn't hear anybody talk. I need to listen to you guys. I, I, you might be, uh, we're usually not this well-mannered, but we have a guest on, so we're being, we're, we're being. We're on our best behavior. <laughs> yeah, we're buying yeah, our hey, P's and Q's. Hey, don't hold back on my account. <laughs> I haven't yelled it, yeah, once. No, it's in, yeah, that's right. It is incredible, though, that, I mean, there these the records of these people just seem to be completely um, just not, not part of the equation at all at this point. And we, we lived through the primary and uh, just last episode that we were recording uh, and somebody asked us, uh, like we did a Q and a episode and somebody was asking Greg and me, like what got us into um, what we described as, as left politics, I guess. And healthcare was a big thing for, for both of us. Um, and I mean, even now it's incredible. Like we watched, uh, the three of us were very involved in, in the Bernie Sanders campaign here in Utah. And we paid close attention to the debates, which was just the biggest nightmare on earth. And I can't believe I did that because it was the worst thing ever, (laughs) but, um, to watch 
to watch, you know, one, two people on stage have to make the case for Medicare for all or a single payer system or public um, health in general, and not the vice versa where, you know, where people are up there, the, the assumption is that we have to defend the for-profit healthcare industry. And it's the onus is on the people who think that we should just, you know, every, that healthcare should be a human right. It's up to them to make the case for why uh, that should be the case and not the well, other way around, which is just well, horrifying. When the rest of the industrialized world, 100% of the rest of the industrialized world has universal health care. It's, it's We're sickening. The only nation. Yeah. It is. And by the way, you, you talk about left and all that and why I left Democratic Party. You don't have to talk left, right, conservative, liberal, Republican, Democrat, whatever. Just talk about what the majority of people in this country want Absolutely. and expect from our government. Absolutely right. Yeah. Getting back to, to democracy, what it is the people want down the line. And, and it may not be a, a majority of Republicans on health care, but it's a sure. majority of the people of this country. Yeah. Want universal health care. Yeah. The majority of the people in this country overwhelmingly want finance campaign finance reform. They want effective action on climate. They want uh, lower education costs. They want a fairer student debt resolution. They want equal um, housing opportunities, affordable housing. They, they, the, you look at where the majority of people are, we're so far ahead of what the Republican and Democratic leadership have, together have combined to give this country. We're not getting what we all want out of our government. And we sure as hell, the majority of people don't want to see the kind of defense expenditures where we're spending more than what, the next yeah. 22 nations combined? Yeah. Over, what it's it's over 800 billion now. It's, yeah, it's, it's over 800 billion it's now. Almost, yeah, we're almost reaching a trillion dollars a year on the defense budget. Astounding. And you, you look at the costs, just the interest on the, the, Accumulated debt. You know, I, I'm a fiscal conservative, is that term, as people understand it. But any anybody that considers themselves a social liberal should be because the rights plan is to get us so far in debt that the only option is to start cutting what they call entitlement programs. Start cutting the programs that are there for the, those who are most in need. Medicaid, Medicare, Social Security, uh, anything, student lunch program. I mean, they want, they want to cut it all, these people on the far right. And public well, education is uh, being a big one. Oh, it seems, it seems... Now they want to cut it all out entirely. Yeah. It seems the they plan... Want to do it, they, now the Supreme Court says we have to pay for church run schools if yep. we're going to give vouchers to others we got to give it to them too man how that has been turned on its head over time but you know we, my point is and this is why we have the justice movement we changed the name of the justice party of the justice movement because these third parties that are running candidates aren't getting anywhere it was 1954 is the last time somebody other than a republican or democrat won a statewide a state office in Utah. It was a legislator. Um, 
look what happened with Nader. Nader's a very dear friend of mine. We've talked this. I don't ever want to talk to him about it again. What happened in 2000 <laughs> yeah. with, with Al Gore and George Bush? It changed the world. Yeah. And yeah. then Jill Stein running and, and, and allowing a guy like Trump to be elected president. Uh, if, if everybody that voted for Jill Stein had voted Hillary Clinton, maybe held their nose and voted for Hillary Clinton. I, I actually did vote for Jill Stein, but that's because in Utah, we knew what the result yeah. was going to be. But in battleground states, you don't screw around with it. Uh, yeah, I mean, in that case... Like, yeah, that kind of bring, uh, brings me to another question. But in that case, I would argue that they should have just picked a way better candidate and it wouldn't have been an issue. Yeah, um, yeah should have. <laughs> so we, we had what we had and that, that was. No, I agree. Yeah, and actually, she's a terrible candidate during the I primary. Have, man, I yeah. was feeding journalists with questions to ask Hillary Clinton and giving them her <laughs> whole background. And, and uh, uh, I, but uh, they maneuvered it. You know, they it, did. Was, it was when McGovern was the nominee. After he lost, the Democratic Party leaders decided we're never going to allow the left of our party to do that to the party again. And that's yeah. when they came up with these special delegates. And it is it is so anti-democratic and so corrupt in the Democratic Party that they hand out special delegate yeah. status to people. And the, Clinton, the primary thing is a complete disaster. We saw it play out. Clinton's yeah, yeah. campaign bought off the state parties so that she would get those special delegates. But anyway, yeah. Yeah, that's we've got so many issues to cover here. But on uh, in terms <laughs> of this, the, running the city, you need passionate, energetic, effective leadership. And that's you asked me initially and then I got off on. No, you're fine. No. Well, yeah, the, like, yeah, the question of third this? parties is very interesting. So, I mean, and, yeah. and I'm glad to see that, like, I, I like the distinction of, of saying this is a movement rather than, you know, the third party, because, you know, we see a lot of what I describe as charlatanism from third parties, mm -hmm. like we were seeing right now from like what, what I would argue Andrew Yang and the forward party are saying and doing where they don't have any policy positions at all. And they just... Uh, seem to just try to funnel money uh, to different places. And so I, 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 I'm in agreement with your strategy here of um, I, I think it's good to put your, put some distance between yourself and the Democratic Party in a lot of cases that might earn you some goodwill. But in other times, I mean, um, it, especially in these local races, I think you're in an advantageous position to, you know, be what you are and run as you are. Yeah, um, and that's, that kind of I, I think it's great that the mayoral race is nonpartisan. Yeah. You don't have to go through the party apparatus. You don't have to, you know, you don't have to. I mean, that party stuff disgusted me, frankly, when I was running for Congress and the conventions and all the. Oh, my God, people are so ugly when it comes to, to party politics. But yeah. the justice movement is really about, regardless of political affiliation, people coming together and pushing government to do what it is the majority of people want and expect of our government. And yeah. we're such a far way away from that. We are. And I think it's important, like, um, you know, trying to make people believe again that government can actually do something, do something well. And, and like, like what, a criticism I have of the Bernie Sanders campaign is, is not leaning harder into like New Deal rhetoric, for instance, because mm -hmm. um, there are a lot of older 
older folks, people, uh, you know, that might be see themselves as conservative Republicans, et cetera, but still might have uh, positive feelings towards New Deal programs as as imperfect as a lot of that was. Um, a lot of those older voter voters who see themselves alienated from current politics um, have those positive feelings. And like and in, in, in the campaign that was taking place here, the three of us did a lot of door knocking and calling, et cetera, and talking to people uh, in the state about the campaign. And that was an, an alienation from politics was was extremely clear and a common thread that came through so many people's, um, you know, just general idea of what they thought politics is and what it could be. And it, there's it's it's a very cynical thing for people to feel like. But I, I understand why they feel that. And so. I think it's a really important to try to make the case that like, you know, government can do something good for you. And like, also, you know, these are governments are ostensibly democratic and you have a say in what happens and you don't have a say in what happens in private enterprise and private corporations. No. And the more they strip away from us, the less democratic control we have over our lives, the less freedom we have. If we keep giving it up to private corporations, because Absolutely. we, you know, Absolutely. As, as imperfect, as imperfect as government can be, and, you know, as corrupted as, as a lot of it can be also, we have even less say once it's completely out of the government's hand, hands and it's in private corporations yeah. and private oh, enterprise. Absolutely. So. I mean, think about it this way. There's no such thing as a social security queen because that since that's a universal program, people just go, well, you can't really abuse that system. So if you make universal programs universal to everyone, then there's no sort of resentment that comes right. from those. Bingo. And I mean, if I was a Democratic Party and I was trying to build up something for the future, I would say we're going to give you your future back because what you have now is you have a voter base who thinks I don't have a future. I'm settled with $50,000 worth of student loans. I'm never going to buy a house. My rent keeps going up every single year. What do I have to vote for? I, it's a population that's just beaten down. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and people are... You know, it's Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Absolutely. If you're fighting for existence every day, you're not going to be able to go out and go door to door <laughs> for a candidate or go out and, and march in a movement. But I but I must say, ultimately, it is up to we the people. We still have enough power in this country that when we organize together, we can overcome the power of that money and that kind of resistance. And we, we've seen it throughout our nation's history. And it's this is an obsolete history. But the anti-slavery movement, the women's suffrage movement, the civil rights movement, labor movement, farm workers movement, the early environmental movement, they, they all pushed us toward tremendous progress. And if anybody doubts that we can still do it, in 1996, I was advocating marriage equality as, as a congressional candidate. 20 Democratic office holders and candidates held a press conference the day after I won my primary, and they to distance themselves from me with the electorate and talked about how they vehemently disagreed with my position on same-sex marriage. That was 1996. Now, look, look how much progress we've made. Yeah. When people have been out on the streets and organizing and putting money into these campaigns, and we've beat them now at, and at, at, with help from the Supreme Court. But even if the Supreme Court reverses itself, like Clarence Thomas wants it to do yeah. on same-sex marriage, yeah. we've won these battles politically. I mean, our congressional delegation just supported 
Uh, yeah, that was that was pretty fascinating to see. Yeah. Um, so, so that's that's done. But another example here locally, we had the legislature, the governor and the LDS church come out against legalized medical cannabis and people organized. They ran a proposition which our state constitution allows the people to pass their own legislation. We were the second state in the country to put that in our constitution. That happened in 1900 as part of the national progressive movement where there was great distrust of state legislatures. We've got that in our constitution. The people went out and they won. And we have what nobody, we thought, everybody thought Utah would be the last state in the country to have legalized medical cannabis. We've got it because of the likes of, uh, well, the organizations like Truce and the individuals that went out and fought this battle. And we we all ought to thank them for giving us that kind of autonomy over ourselves in the state of Utah, up against such tremendous, powerful forces, including Marty Stevens, who's with now the used to be Speaker of the House, and he hated my guts when he was Speaker of the House. <laughs> now he's the intergovernmental affairs guy for the LDS Church. He was speaking from the pulpit, telling his congregants, vote against Proposition 2. We beat them. Yeah. That is really that, and not just for the sake of cannabis, for the sake of our democracy and popular autonomy. We ought to be thrilled that that can still happen. And it ought to energize us. And you talked about people's apathy and their cynicism. Cynicism, spiritual death. Anytime anybody Absolutely. says, oh, I don't, I don't bother with politics, I say to hell with you then. You, you don't deserve <laughs> to have a voice. You don't deserve to complain because all of us need to carry on these fights together. And like Joe Hill said before he was executed for being a labor organizer. My man. Uh, yeah. What did he say before he was executed? Don't mourn, organize. Don't yep. mourn, organize. And yeah. that still holds true. And it's still every one of our responsibility, whatever we do, whether yeah. you're running for public office, whether you're sweeping out the schools after hours, we all have a responsibility to organize together and push for these kinds of changes. That's very well said. Yeah. And I think that actually kind of leads to what this particular uh, moment in in politics really is, because I think it's organizing in certain ways, even beyond what we're seeing in politics. I mean, I think there's other avenues that are starting to form even beyond like voting and for forming for political parties or anything like that. Like there's a union movement in Utah for the first time in my life. Because I think um, I, we've seen even at retail levels, which I have never seen, especially in this state, like especially with Starbucks, you have a, a clever octopus is doing it as well. Um, yeah. The downtown Harmons. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Park City Ski Patrol. Yep. Really? Yeah. Oh, I didn't yeah. know it's Ski Patrol. You're starting to see, I think, a much more militant labor movement than we've seen in, I don't know, probably the last 40 years, at least since Reagan. And I think even beyond politics, we're seeing an energy that's kind of that's resonating something deeper than just what USIC passes like political activity, where you just show up to a polling place every two to four years, press a button and get a sticker and you're done. What do you think 
is the future for like labor, especially within like Salt Lake City, because um, I have a bunch of friends who are teachers. They're all pretty big members of like Salt Lake Education Association. And they're kind of nervous for what's going to happen, especially with the state, because they see what's happened with with school districts across the state and kind of curious what your take is on what labor's future is, especially at at the municipal level. I'm so glad you raised that because not only does it impact things in individual lives and, 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 and give people more power in the workplace, but it, it increases the stability and the vibrancy of the middle class. If you read uh, Paul Krugman's book, Conscience of a Liberal, two things basically sustained a vibrant, solid, sustained middle class for over 35 years before Reagan. And I'm glad you pointed out that it all started with Reagan because it did. And what, what were those two factors? It was our tax structure and it was the strength of unions. And as unions become stronger and wages are increased, it snowballs and it affects everybody. It increases everybody's standard of living. And, you know, the middle class has been decimated in this country. Absolutely. Wealthy, you know, thank God Congress finally is doing something about all the wealthy corporations that aren't paying any taxes. I mean, George Bush, when he started the Iraq war, was the first president in our nation's history to start a war and at the same time give huge tax breaks to the wealthy. Then along comes Trump and he outdid Bush. And uh, Federal Express, perfect example. I think people need to give examples because they stick with people. Federal Express paid one and a half billion dollars in taxes. One company, after the Trump giveaways to the wealthy in this country, Federal Express had a negative tax bill. Pays nothing. So (laughs) Congress is finally getting it that the the people of this country are sick and tired of, of these folks with their lobbyists and having their way with Congress and the president, letting these folks off the hook and paying their fair share and and, and building up the, the accumulated national debt, creating these deficits that hurt in the long run, as I said earlier, those who are most in need. I, re- I so highly recommend that book. Another thing, and Kyle, you, you mentioned this earlier, if you don't mind me going back to Please. it. The impact of evictions on homelessness. First of all, everybody, it's it should be a must read. The the Pulitzer Prize winning book, Evicted. It gives some case studies by the sociologists that lived among people who are getting evicted. And yeah, this is evicted by Matthew Desmond, correct? Matthew Desmond. <laughs> it is amazing. And he you know, I love reading a book that not only points out the problems, but also has solutions. And at the end, he says, you know, in the Netherlands, in England, there are universal housing voucher programs. You don't have just Section yeah. 8 like we have where you you cap it off and then people are in line. What are people supposed to do without housing vouchers 
and they don't have anywhere else to go. And in, in these other countries, just like we have universal food stamps for people at certain income levels, they have universal housing vouchers. And you can't make it ridiculous like Washington, D.C. has, where you give vouchers so people can move in like the highest price housing you can imagine and then not provide services. So you've got people lighting fires in the hallway and human excrement outside the doors in these really expensive condominium units that everybody's moving out of. But you got to bring some sense to it. But we as a nation can provide for those who are most in need, but you don't do it by going from number one in the country for four-year degrees to number, what are we now? Not uh, number one, that's for sure. No, no, I think we're number 10. Russia's yeah. number two, and I believe we're number 10 coming down from number one. And a lot of it is because of tuition rates and all the rest. But we got to get back. State universities were built so that we would have essentially equal educational opportunities for everybody. Now, what yeah. is the cost? People go into all this debt to go to someplace like the University of Utah, and they have this <laughs> debt hanging over yeah. them, and yeah. they can't buy a home. It's hor- I mean, it has all these ripple effects on our economy. I talked to this woman. I was on a radio station in Berkeley. And she came to me, tears in her eyes. She said, because of her student debt, she finally had to tell her daughter, not only are we never going to have our own home, but I'm not going to be able to help you with your tuition needs. Yeah. That is happening for millions of people across this country. We're better than this. Yeah, we, we, we absolutely should be. Yeah. Um, I, I, the question of education in this country is, uh, I think, is on the forefront of a lot of people's minds. Jordan mentioned being close to, to teachers. Um, and there's a multi-pronged approach that's a, a multi-pronged attack at public education in general in this country. And it's 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 gone through phases where the you know, it was it was focused on uh, it took the covid angle and like the you know, teachers being unwilling to put themselves in harm's way for uh, you know, especially pre-vaccines, there were, you know, critical race theory attacks. And then there's all, all the the different angles about, you know, teachers, you know, supposedly teaching kids about sex and grooming, et cetera. It's, it's this multi-pronged approach that it seems to all just get to the same thing of where it's an attack on public education as an institution, and they'd like to privatize that as well. And they're just taking a lot of different avenues to get there. I'm curious how you feel like you can defend public education in Salt Lake City um, and kind of be a beacon for what public education should be as an institution, uh, not just for the city, but for everywhere. Yeah, I, well, the school board is separate from the city. Yeah. The city, I, as mayor, you have one hell of a megaphone and you can organize people together. I used to hold uh, public uh, conferences all the time. People come in and we talk about all sorts of issues and raise awareness, and it would be in in the papers and on the news at night. And if you've got to talk about these things and not, frankly, we've had mayors who are really cowardly and not taking on the legislature. I sent you guys some information about the seven freedoms. Uh, I, I mentioned that this former Speaker of the House didn't really care for me very much. 
Pat Bagley showed him at a table with the Speaker of the House emblem behind him. And he had all these seagulls lined up on the table and on chairs behind it. And he had a picture of me on the table with my name and it said, make it look like a mistake. And the whole message was, you know, the, the church and the legislature wanted me dead. But <laughs> that's, that's a good badge of honor, Man, I guess. Yeah. But the people of the state deserve somebody in a leadership position calling it like it is. And my seventh freedom speech, I happened to make it when the legislature was hosting the National Association of Legislators. And I gave the speech about the seven fundamental freedoms that our legislature was denying the people of the state. And if, if it embarrassed them, then so be it. They should have been embarrassed. If they were proud of it, then it shouldn't have been a problem. But uh, we, we need courageous leadership. We never got hurt by the legislature. They always threatened it. You know, they got really upset with me when I joined with the Sierra Club and tried to stop the legacy highway, and it ultimately was stopped. It was totally illegal the way they planned it, all the corners they were cutting. And what they ended up with was a much better uh, project, and it was legal. But what they did initially had to be challenged. And sure. we took the opportunity uh, to try to educate people about the, the advantages of mass transit. I went up to Davis County, taking my life uh, in my hands, I think. Uh, I mean, these people were not a friendly audience. I said, I want to explain to you why we're doing this. And, and I went through everything from climate protection and, and uh, our air pollution problems, the health effects, and the, the economic impacts. We, we had the most people coming in and leaving our city every day per capita of any city in the country. And they were polluting the valley, they're requiring all this parking, and they're driving one person per vehicle. And so before I started this presentation, though, I said, do you want to hear my presentation, hear my pitch? Or And then I pulled out a rope and the, and the, that I'd fashioned as a noose, and I said, or do you just want to get this over with right now? <laughs> and I think half of them would have liked to have just gotten it over with. But anyway, it's the kind of conversation you have to have. Yeah. You can't just avoid it and say, oh, geez, I'm afraid they're going to be mad at me or they're going to cut our budget or they're going to, you know, you can't do that. Right. Agreed. And if you tell the truth, they, those people all know one thing, that I firmly believe in what I'm talking about and I know what I'm talking about. I get the facts. I read everything on all sides. And I'm happy for an open debate with anybody. But just to stick your head in the sand and say, geez, I'm, you know, I, I don't want to I don't want to rock the boat. Well, I've lived my whole life rocking the boat and it's been very successful because we've made a lot of changes. And that's the only way that happens. And I just say all of us that feel this way need to get together. This can't this is not me wanting to run for mayor. I, I don't want to do this in my life. I mean, I, but I do want to run for mayor now. I'm passionate about it because I know I can build the team and build the collaborations to make a huge difference when it comes to our policing, when it comes to affordable housing, and when it comes to housing the homeless and treating the mentally ill. And we did it. We, 
you, and we need to do it again. You look at the yeah, eight absolutely. years, how many units, hundreds and hundreds of units of permanent housing for the chronically homeless, and then it came to an abrupt halt. Yeah. Well, we're yeah. going to do it again. And people say, well, how, like the Tribune editorial the other day, well, you know, it's not like the Republican legislature is going to do any favors for Rocky Anderson. Actually, they will. Do you think the Mormon church wants its headquarters city or, or the legislature wants its capital city to greet visitors with with encampments all over the place, with violence, with 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 stories about our police killing mentally ill homeless people and not rendering aid to people who are bleeding to death? Yeah, that's not the kind of city we want. And I know that I've got good Republican Mormon support in this race because they want to see the changes. They they may say, oh, I don't agree with his politics, you know, his, his marches, all of that. Well, actually, I think they do agree with, with what I did against the Iraq war and against Bush now, looking back on it. But we don't need to we don't need to debate all of that. We just need to fix the problems that we have in front of us every day. And like we did with our environmental programs, where I reduced greenhouse gas emissions in city operations by 31% in three years, and then took the show on the road nationally and internationally with mayors to show them what they can do in their own cities. And Robert Redford and yeah. I put on the Sundance Summit three years in a row, bringing mayors in to, to show them best practices and how to educate people about the threats of climate change, we can do the same thing with homelessness. We can get to the point where we've conquered this, we did the right thing, both short-term and long-term, and take that show on the road and show people that we were the model city to do this. And not just wring our hands and say, oh, it's so complex, so difficult. Let's just keep rounding up the homeless and abating their encampments, moving them all over the place, making their lives miserable and not moving the needle in terms of long-term solution one inch forward. And yeah. that's where we are right now. It's horrific. And yeah, I mean, I'm glad you mentioned climate. I want to end on climate. I want to thank you again for your time. I know we've been recording for for quite a while at this point. Well, but, I'm the one that's been doing so much of the time. No, you're totally fine. I, I, it's, I love getting your thoughts on this stuff. Um, I haven't heard I haven't heard you know you in long form for quite some time. So um, I'm appreciative as a listener as well. But um, in the spirit of debate, Rocky, I think I think you know full transparency. The three of us aren't super on board with Evan McMullen. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. well, and uh, I know a couple of weeks ago you wrote an op-ed endorsing him. And you know, before we get back around to some things that I think we all very much agree on when when it when it comes to climate, we should talk about Evan McMullen and and why you chose to uh, to endorse him. And we've been very critical because we believe. I think I speak for the three of us. We all have the exact same brain. Clearly, um, we we think he'll vote <laughs> the same way as Mike Lee. And so, what I think this. What I think this campaign represents, and again, feel free to to disagree, and I know you will, um, is that this this feels like a like a big wasted cycle and a wasted opportunity for Democrats, in my view. Instead of running a campaign that's very issue focused, that's very on the ground, and I, I made this comparison a few months ago when we were when you know when uh, they first made the uh, the decision to not run 
a candidate and instead endorse him was the Charles Booker example in Kentucky when he was running uh, mm-hmm. a campaign. Ultimately, the 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 primary chose Amy McGrath, who brought in millions and millions and millions of dollars to try to unseat Mitch McConnell, completely flamed out, failed. And it was a, a big waste in my view. And what I think, you know, even if the Democrats nominate somebody who's not going to be ultimately successful, that there is value in building for future cycles. Because what I see this is, is like, say the Democrats are successful in getting Evan McMullen elect, um, elected and beating Mike Lee. What happens moving forward? Do the Democrats plan on running a candidate against the guy that they helped get into place? And like, what are the issues that really would differentiate at that point? Uh, between what they believe in the future versus what they believed in the past to nominate this guy. Does that make sense? Like, I, yeah, that absolutely makes sense. And it's, and, and it's more far, far-sighted than what most people are thinking. Sure. <laughs> Me, I'm thinking, get Mike Lee the hell out of the Senate. The, the guy... Uh, he, we sedition. agree. We all agree. Mike Lee is the like. He, he, he yeah, sucks. sucks. <laughs> but worse than his votes, he contributed to sedition. Sure. He yeah. was, I mean, you look at the, the these are things that are so fundamental in our nation right now. I mean, we have no democracy if the Mike Lees are in charge. And it was despicable what the man did. And, and you talk about their voting, uh, how they'll vote. Uh, Evan McMullen will not vote for federal legislation that will provide for a complete ban on abortions without exceptions. Now he ran to the right of Trump. He wanted to repeal in 2016. He wanted, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and from that point, I mean, Roe versus Wade. We most of us knew that with a certain composition of the Supreme Court, it was very vulnerable because the legal reasoning, you know, it 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 was creative. And it provided really a pretty good nuanced solution to the issue. But the Supreme Court isn't the legislature. That that should fundamentally be done by the legislature until you've got unless you've got a good constitutional basis for it. And a lot of I mean, a lot of people left, right, it doesn't matter, um, knew that you change the composition of the court. It was subject to being overruled. And so our job, I think, right now is with our state legislatures and doing what we can to and in Utah. Sure. That's a long, hard fight. But, yep, you know, we absolutely got is legal cannabis. Who the hell knows what's going to happen when it comes to bodily autonomy? But uh, so the, the political question you ask, so like, do the Democrats run somebody else next time? If Evan McMullen is voted into office, uh, I hope the Democratic Party can get its stuff together and, <laughs> yeah. and yeah. become that kind of a force in Utah politics. But I don't think they've I I, I yeah. know there have been some really good people that have done a lot of good work, but there are also a lot of negative influences that have ripped that party apart and are going off on a lot of tangents instead of saying, let's do what we need to do to win an election. And by the way, I hadn't changed a lot. In 1996, they didn't give me any money. I was a Democratic candidate. And because I was advocating same-sex marriage, they wouldn't even put me in 
they wouldn't even name me in their letters, their fundraising letters. They said, well, our first congressional <laughs> candidate, who nobody's ever heard of, but they named him by name. And then our third congr district congressional candidate named him by name. And then they'd refer to me as the second congressional candidate. That was it. They wouldn't even. They wanted How dare you? How dare you support gay marriage back then? Incredible. Oh, but, I mean, I had people that I'd fought these battles arm in arm with over the years, like Planned Parenthood. I was on the Planned Parenthood board for, for two different terms, uh, helped uh, for, found Utahns for Choice. And those people were supporting initially a guy that wanted a constitutional ban on abortion, Jim McConkie. Yeah. I said, what are you doing? Yeah. Well, at least he can win. And they, they, they kept telling me. Love that. Love hearing that. But a pollster at BYU told them they needed a white male conservative Mormon. Mm -hmm. Of course. And I said, okay, so religion, sex, and race are three of your four criterion. And your fourth criterion is conservative. And you're the Democratic Party leadership? I said, you know, I'm just an ordinary guy. I've been practicing law, real involved in this community for years. I'm going to go run. I'm sure you guys can just whip my butt. Yeah. Let's go all out. And they did. They went out and found their guy who was for DOMA, which I said at the time was absolutely unconstitutional, Defense of Marriage Act, which Bill Clinton signed. And then it took all those years until Obama for somebody uh, to agree and say, yeah, it's unconstitutional. Yeah. But I, I fought them. I won the primary by a long shot and carried on a really good general campaign with no help from the Democratic Party. And they sent word out to all the, Democrat, uh, the folks in Washington, don't contribute to him because he's too liberal. <laughs> that's why I lost that race. Thank God I lost because then being mayor is a lot better than being in Congress. She can do a lot more in an executive position. And our record of accomplishment in eight years, I am so proud of it. And that's the impression I get as well is that uh, I feel like mayor, for someone like you, especially um, who seems to have a bit more altruistic beliefs than I think a lot of people that we elect and send to Congress. Oh, yeah. Um, not excluding a certain recent Democratic representative that we sent to Congress who we were all very critical of. Um, yeah, <laughs> I, I think Mayor, I, I think that feels like a, a better position for someone like you. I, I, I think... I understand the, the the perspective of 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 feeling like that you know we need to get Mike Lee out due to his his role in in the January six things, and I think that's a good point. I what I think that signifies to me, unfortunately, is that the onus for holding someone like that accountable appears to be on the voters of a like a very uphill battle for the voters when you know it, a functioning government should be able to investigate, charge, and deal with people who do things like that effectively. Uh, a good example of what is taking place in Bolivia where they had a successful coup and then the tides changed. And the person who did the coup, uh, who referred to the, uh, indigenous people of Bolivia as like terrorists is now in prison for committing, um, treason and doing a coup. So, I mean, there are certain ways that I wish that, uh, certain things could be handled that didn't, it wasn't up to 
you to write an op-ed, you know, endorsing Evan McMullen. I understand your perspective <laughs> as to as to why, but I, I wish that we had more functioning systems in place to deal with people who do that kind of thing. Yeah, and I um, also just want to get away from the just the absolutely blind partisanship. You know, the polls show they vary 61% to 70% of Republicans still believe that the election was stolen. Yeah. And it's, and it's, it's just an absolute lie. Yeah. It's Goering's big lie. You just keep saying the most outrageous things, completely baseless in I terms mean, of fact. Yeah. Counter to every court decision that's been rendered, lawyers are being disciplined for making those arguments. And 61 to 70 percent of Republicans still believe in it. Because I mean, what's lost in the January 6th stuff in particular is that every Republican that, that went on TV, et cetera, that perpetuated that lie over and over again, created that situation. And unfortunately, the people that are going to prison are the, you know, the the rubes who believed them. But like uh, the you know, they still there's I mean, how many Republicans in Congress or uh, or in the Senate still won't actually just straight up say that. You know, that wasn't true. The election wasn't stolen. There's a, so many that still are riding and dying on that train. Oh, yeah. You're not a team player in the Republican Party if you state the obvious. And that is that the election wasn't stolen. And yeah. There's zero evidence for it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But in um, the long run, in the long run, <laughs> people will look back. History will record that these people were all totally out to lunch. They were they don't deal with facts. They don't deal with evidence. And they just fell in line with this Trump cult that strung them along. And it was for the benefit mostly of one person and all the corporations that he helped dodge. I mean, like, yeah. And, and, and like, I think it's pretty clear that like that is what the Republican Party has become as a whole, though. Like, I mean, yeah, like there is like the cult of, of Trump, but like, you know, just like immediately after January 6th, you had Mitch McConnell saying, yeah, this is Trump's fault. And then two weeks later, the tone had completely shifted. And now, you know, um, there's the uh, big defense, uh, I guess, of of Trump and uh, absolving him of any of that responsibility. Sorry, Greg, I cut you off. No, it's OK. I just I I have a quick question that now that we've talked about Evan, I kind of wanted to. Re- to rewind the tape back a little bit and go back to the beginning of the interview talking about Bernie and his success in Utah. Um, My question is, is that like, there seems to be a whole lot of dissonance between uh, like a progressive part of the electorate here in Salt Lake and here in Utah who wants someone like Bernie, you know, Bernie winning the primary in 2016 and 2020 and what the democratic party does and acts, which is in complete opposition is completely opposite of uh, everything that Bernie ran on. And why do you think that is? I think you've touched on it a little bit, but I, I'd love to hear it, you know, straight yeah. from the horse's mouth. Why like, the why, Democrats? Why, why won't the Democrats that? embrace someone who's who won back to back primaries and is wildly popular, is still the most popular politician in America? Well, if we had just a minute, I'd go grab a cartoon that's on my fridge. <laughs> and it's, it's a Pat Bagley cartoon of a donkey. And somebody lifted the head off the donkey. Yeah. It's a, co- a costume. And it's got a chicken's head underneath. <laughs> <laughs> it, that's, I, I just think there are a lot of people who won't stand for principle. They, they're chicken. I mean, all these 20 Democratic Party 
elected officials and candidates coming out against me because I supported marriage equality in 1996. Yeah. That that was only to give them political cover because it wasn't the majority view at the time. Now, these same people wouldn't miss an equality Utah dinner. Are you kidding? <laughs> they know where right. the political power is in this state. Yeah. Yeah, that's 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 a funny reality, I guess you could say. But yeah, we were. I mean, well said during the like the primaries this last year. I mean, like we saw the the, the leadership of the Utah Democratic Party, uh, you know, come out in support of Pete Buttigieg or, you know, uh, Ben McAdams endorsed Michael Bloomberg for some reason. Um, and it, that the dissonance of, of seeing and feeling the energy on the ground uh, and and then seeing what the dem- like the leadership of of the party locally in a you know, at like a our congressional representative, what they believed, I, I it, it's. It's that's really tough, tough thing to deal with sometimes when the answers seem so clear. And uh, I and like something you said earlier, where I mean, like where you said you, you wouldn't describe it as left politics, even though like in this country, you know, these these radical things that we believe are very centrist positions uh, in other parts of the world in this country are seen as, you know, communism, Marxism. I want that Marxist health care or whatever, um, you know, I think a lot of the people that were excited that got involved or felt, you know, or f- feel like there's some type of like trust in Bernie Sanders in particular, and that style of politician that there's just something about him. that a lot of people feel like they can trust. Doesn't seem like he's bought by corporate interests because he's not. Um, there's something there where people that don't even associate themselves with left politics or think that they are, have left politics or even liberal politics or whatever, um, are drawn to that kind of thing. And I would just wish that's something that people in the state leaned way more into because there is something there. And we had organizers from a couple Starbucks on this podcast when they were organizing their workplaces. And a lot of them, um, or a couple of them were, were talking about finding that like common ground and organizing with their conservative uh, coworkers who were also on board with organizing their workplace um, at one of the Starbucks downtown. And one of their reasons for organizing the Starbucks is because um, one of the people that we had on was trans and they were like really concerned about like, trans rights in the workplace uh-huh. and that being like you know one mm. of the things that was motivating them to organize the workplace and getting co- uh, conservative co-workers on board um that's that's the only i, I don't want to say the only like i don't want to do the forward thing but like that's how that's the only way we can progress really is like actually finding common ground and not being not yeah. compromising our beliefs but pulling people over and showing them the way and like showing let like the rising tide will like raise all of us. And like, I think that's incredibly important. So when you talk about like, you know, hopefully like the church is on board with uh, your proposals to house the homeless, as crazy as that might seem, mm-hmm. whatever we can do to get them to agree to get these people a goddamn house, like, let's do that. Like, that's what needs to happen. So um, anyway, that was a bit of a diatribe, but I want to end on climate. Uh and it's, it's obviously something that's very important to us. You mentioned how much you love Salt Lake. We do too. And not only are the issues that we face are very like interpersonal with like the stuff that people that live here are dealing with on their daily lives. There's the existential threat that's becoming, you know, increasingly more apparent as uh, that gigantic water source we know as the Great Salt Lake is completely drying up. And there are ancient water rights from the Colorado River that are drying that river up as, as well. And we know that two thirds of the state's agri- or water goes to agriculture and a gigantic chunk of that is for alfalfa that should not 
likely be grown here. I'm curious your perspective on just like the general water situation in the state, because I think that's the one that's facing us most immediately and that we're getting a lot of national attention for, but just in general, what your vision is for Utah climate wise, because I know you've dealt with this in the past, obviously, and had, had success, but obviously this is something that's more important now than ever. Kyle, do you know what our governor grows? Uh, he grows alfalfa, alfalfa, and it turns okay. out it's probably a bit of a uh, conflict of interest, if you ask me. But just thought I'd mention that. It's okay. insane, Rocky. It's insane. So, I so can't. I've been, I'll go, I've I'll go crazy. I've, I've, I've lost so much hair and sleep out oh, over <sighs> that. Like it, that drives me absolutely up the wall. Okay, I'll I'll, I'll add something to your frustration. Please. Oh, great! Amazing. Governor, when Governor Huntsman was governor, and I was mayor, mm-hmm. we we had lunch at an ethnic restaurant together at least once a month. And I was, I, for years, I had been pounding on everybody I could find about climate. And I've, I've got a really good presentation about climate and, and the need for leadership and what we did here in Salt Lake City on uh, YouTube. I encourage anybody to take a look at it, Rocky Anderson. Maybe we link to that in the description of this episode. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and it goes way back, but it shows you the kinds of things that can actually be done if you set a goal and get about doing it. Well, so Governor Huntsman, first thing he did, he found out that I was driving a natural gas used Honda Civic. Totally gutless. But, and he had an SUV. <laughs> And he 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 paid twenty thousand dollars to convert it to natural gas. Had these tanks in the back of his SUV. He joined the Northwestern Climate Conference among governors, which the legislature tried to kill him for doing. They tried to restrict his ability to to join any kind of regional organization. Then he created a, a blue ribbon task force on climate change. I don't like the use use of that term. I think it's too innocuous. Yeah, the existential threat we're facing, uh, but uh, that that's what people know it by. I call it climate crisis, climate chaos, anything climate catastrophe. We go to Hawaii for climate change, for God's sake. That's a good point. Talking well, about bad messaging, but anyway, he formed that committee. I was on that committee. And then he formed, and this is what unbelievably people don't realize, he formed a scientific consensus group. And he got the top scientists from every university in the state to write, and it's entitled Utah Scientific Consensus Report on Climate Change. And they they warned about what was gonna happen to the ski industry, to water in our river basins, to agriculture. And they said, it's, this is happening because primarily because of human activities, the, yeah. the burning of fossil fuels. And if we don't stop this, this is what's going to happen. It's just all going to get worse. And then he leaves. We have this report. It, it informs everybody, the top scientists in the state. Then as his successor, Herbert, comes in, some journalist asked him, so what do you think about measures on climate change and doing something? He said, well, I think we, I think it needs more study. Awesome. Well, oh, my God. <laughs> You've got the, all the top scientists in this area 
signing off on what they call a consensus report and telling us what it's caused, what it's going to cause, what a disaster this is going to be. And then every every governor we've had and most of the Republican legislators have been equally clueless on this issue, setting us all up for disaster. And now they're scrambling. It was like, you know, getting the buying the pumps under Bangor for the Great Salt Lake that were never used. Now they're scrambling to figure out what we're going to do. And you drive around Utah streets, residential streets, and everybody still has their lawns and are watering their lawns. And when I first came in as mayor, we had an ordinance, 100% turf requirement for front yards and the parking strips. Well, I violated the law. I ripped it all up, put in xeriscaping, and New York Times came out, took a picture of me, did this great story in New York Times about how I was violating our own laws by putting in xeriscaping and saving all this water. And that then got the council to change the ordinance. I think they dropped it from 100% to like 20% or something. And my view was, what are you telling people what they have to have in their front yards and their parking strip? Hell Unless yeah. they kill the city trees. But you, the water rates, we changed those. Yeah. Staged them so that heavy residential water users we're going to be charged more per unit of water above a certain amount. It was basically like progressive tax structure, but it was water rates. Our water rates should be much higher than they are for large residential water users. We we just you have to change the way people think to address these problems sure. and not just wring your hands and say, oh, we need another study. Let's put together another task group. Well, I sent you my list of accomplishments during eight years. You see like, yeah. huge, huge changes, not only in each policy area, but a, a change in the way we think of things. New York Times did an article about me challenging the culture of obedience. And we are a culture of obedience. It's it's it's. You know, the major religion here preaches obedience, blind obedience. Our legislature wants us just to fall in line. Uh, you know, as much as I respect people for their religious beliefs and everything, that's a very dangerous thing to tell people just to fall in line. Uh -huh. That's that's how we have genocides. It's how we have uh, so many major problems when people, instead of having their own internal moral core, their ethical core decide making mapping out how they're going to conduct themselves. They look to something on the outside. They look to their Donald Trumps or their political parties or their religious leaders at the time. Sure, yeah. And so what did we have until 1979? Our predominant religion here said the blacks couldn't go into our temples. They couldn't have the same rights that anybody else had. What a, you know, and then everybody falls in line with that because that's their religion. Well, you know, we all have to stop and think, is it really right? We have to resort to our own conscience and do our own moral thinking rather than just accept blindly what anybody tells us. And if we do that, we'll see there's a, there, this, this is going to happen to our young people, to later generations, we have an absolute moral duty 
to, if, if in a religious sense you want to think about it, we have a duty to preserve God's creation. If you want to think about it just in terms of pure humanitarianism, we have a duty to look out for those who come after us and for our young people not to leave them a less habitable earth. And we all need to be damn passionate about it, and we need to walk the walk. I haven't been in a gas station in 23 years. Nicely done. And everybody can do it. Everybody can do it. Yeah, I, I mean... If you were elected, I'd, I'd I'd really hope you get a Paul Spencer Cox over to an Ethiopian restaurant once a month so you can uh, have some conversations <laughs> about what we're up to. Yeah, uh, he doesn't like me much, but I, I, I for some that. reason that doesn't surprise me. I uh, yeah, I mean, no, no offense to you, trust me. We're not again. We're 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 being polite tonight, but uh, you no, know, we could have had John Huntsman back. What the hell are people thinking? I mean, I, listen, I changed my speaking. Partisan politics. I I had to get a wire scrub during my oh, show. Oh, you you changed to Republican. For I that, changed huh? Republican, so I, I think, could vote for John. I think Huntsman. we all did. I did yeah. the same thing. Yeah, Rocky. Do you know how painful it was for me to scribble in a bubble that says Republican <laughs> to vote for John Huntsman? <laughs> I know, and I did yeah. it again so I could vote against Mike Lee. Well, yeah, I mean, look, we've obviously got our work cut out for us um, in this in this state and like what we're facing. I mean, I we've talked about this before uh, and we've uh, my what I think is going to happen really is that it's it's going to take, you know, a business businesses having mat their material impact uh, actually hitting their bottom line before we see a major shift in 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 policy and how it reflects what we do in this state. Because I mean, in my view, I think it's a no brainer and I would love for my tax dollars to go to uh, move these alfalfa farmers to the upper Midwest or something, or maybe farm something else. Just, you know, we should be paying these people to be doing something else. If it's their livelihood, they shouldn't, you know, suffer the consequences, I guess, but we should be paying for them to be doing something else because I think that there's just, mm -hmm. we, we need to buy ourselves more time until just as a greater society habits in general change. Um, but until a lot of those things are dealt with and, uh, you know, where the vast majority of our water is being used currently, um, until that's addressed, I, I, I do worry for our future. And I, I think we've got some rough years ahead of us. And I think we're all in agreement if we don't do anything. So, so what um, you guys are doing is the important first step of movement building. <laughs> really, I'm saying, I'm, I, I will I'm tell serious. you, this is usually this, this, this grew out of being uh, very frustrated and being in, uh, in our homes during COVID. And uh, it's kind of just carried on, but I appreciate the kind Good words. We, we try to, we, uh, we, we're essentially a slush fund for causes that we see fit. We have, <laughs> we have insane people that pay us to listen to this podcast sometimes, and we just donate it all to abortion funds or bail yeah. funds, et cetera. So you guys. Um, but, but I'm hopefully serious. that's a little bit of the work, but it's not, it's not going to be enough. <laughs> you don't have yeah. a democracy unless you have an informed electorate. And now yeah. what, what's called news isn't news. It's political indoctrination and lies on both sides too, too often. Sure. And yeah. your kind of informed dialogue is so important for people. And then what we need to do is move people from being informed to being engaged. Yeah. And organize, yeah. mobilize, and push for that kind of change. And if you got enough people pushing for these things, 
maybe it would be enough to at least embarrass the governor to do the right thing. If not, <laughs> we'd like to think we played small parts in in, in some of the embarrassment. Um, but yeah, you know, no, happy to bully the governor think whenever of all the possible. Slogans you can come yeah, up we're, with. We're, we're working out. on it. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, especially in a time when there's there's fewer and fewer public commons. I think it's more important than ever to continue talking to people and you know um, develop relationships with people. Um, because it becomes that much more easy to organize uh, and activate people if there's if there's people that trust you and if there's people that you trust as well. Um, these networks are going to become increasingly important as maybe tumultuous times are ahead, but also um, to make things better again as well. But anyway, um, Rocky, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, really, really appreciate your time. We've held you for for quite some time. Um, I, I don't I, I don't want to say this is where you plug your <laughs> your podcast or whatever, but, <laughs> but, but I don't uh, have a podcast to plug. So you can do give your final pitch I, for for mayor, I guess. I, no, I, well, first of all, I want to plug the justice movement. There we go. I, I, I've been executive yeah. director of the, as a volunteer. Uh, for ever, ever since I wound down my law practice a year ago last February. And it's something I deeply believe in because to get the kinds of changes you guys are talking about, it's not by sitting back and waiting until we get enough good elected people in office that are going to bring about the change. That's not how the civil rights movement came about. It's not how the women's suffrage movement came about. It's because people that were committed and passionate would not give up. They were tenacious about it and they pushed every way they could. And that's most recently why we have same-sex marriage in this country. And we're going to continue to have it regardless of what the Supreme Court does on the issue. And it's why in Utah, we have medical cannabis legalized. Mm -hmm. You know, we can't be afraid of this and we can't ever say we're too cool for politics. Because politics is only really, in the highest sense of the word, our, our approach to public policy. And we're all in this together. So if you believe in something, go fight for it. Organize. And we all have a role to play. And as mayor, I want to help continue that organizing and mobilizing. I did it for eight years when I was mayor. We came out against the Iraq war. We came out against Bush. We came out for climate protection. We came out for youth programs for our kids, mass transit. It wasn't just me sitting back in my office and, and handing down edicts. We went out and spoke and, and tried to raise consciousness and we got the public behind us. And here I am, uh, you know, people say, God, you're from Salt Lake City. I said, yeah, I won by 60 to 40 percent. I ended <laughs> up with 59 percent approval rating. And that's after I did all these radical things. And it's because people knew we were speaking the truth to power. And I was just one of the people. And I took my job very seriously. And it's about leadership. And it's a part of leadership is making everybody have a place at the table and we all move forward together. I'd love to hear it. Thanks, Thanks. Rocky. Uh, we will talk to everyone later. And Rocky, hopefully we talk to you again soon, sometime soon in the near future as well. Thank you, guys.
Uh, have a good Greg, one. Thank you for following up, man. Yeah. Thank you for, <laughs> thank you for coming on. And I do just really quickly want to, I, I think I owe you a public apology for uh, misconstruing uh, what was there said in the go. trip art article. So apologies. Uh, yes. Thank you for clarifying. Thank, you. thank yes. you so, so much for coming on. This has been wonderful. I'm so, I've never been more happy that Greg was wrong about something because it ended well, up with this. Yeah, so. absolutely. I, I'm, <laughs> I am so happy to eat crow in this moment. No, as I said, if I had seen what they pulled out and the way they presented it, I would have been right there with you if somebody else had said Amen. it. And so many people went after me. I was up till four in the I morning. I saw you with those replies. You were just but, hammering them. And I've had so <laughs> many people say, I am so sorry that I helped pass on this misinformation. And, you know, people, when they get the facts, unless you're the, the Trump ilk that don't seem to care about the facts and evidence, but Decent people, when they hear the facts, change their minds. I change mm -hmm. my mind a lot when I Agreed. get more information, and we all we all have to do that. But uh, there, I'm I'm looking for any good suggestions, constructive, compassionate suggestions about what we do with the crime, homelessness, and accessible housing, affordable housing issues in this city. If you're looking for uh, looking for some voices, people to be in your ears, uh, the three of us know a lot of people who'd be very happy to be in your ear a lot about that. Yeah, so uh, if that's an open offer, you it, will be getting that. It is indeed. Uh, it Sounds good. Dialogue. Thank you, guys. Awesome. Thanks, Rocky. Really Thank you so it. much. Take care.